This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. It's Tuesday, November 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The makeup of Congress continues to take shape as the House continues to skew toward Republicans and Democrats retain control over the Senate. Democrats overperformed in the midterms and they can attribute that to independent voters that broke their way. Despite the GOP holding the edge on top issues, independent voters were turned off by candidates that were too closely aligned with Trump. Aaron Zittner, politics reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joined us for how independents decided the midterms. Next, the FAA recently held a public comment period on the size of airline seats. What they got was tens of thousands of comments that painted a horrible picture of what passengers experienced. But will those comments lead to bigger and better seats? Probably not. The FAA will decide if they want to make minimum seat requirements, but only what's necessary for safety, not comfort. James Baikalis, reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what to know. Finally, in a shift of what you might expect, baby boomers can't stop looking at their smartphones. While the concern of too much screen time is mostly directed at kids and teens, some millennials and Gen Xers are complaining that their parents can't let the phones go, especially when the grandchildren are around. Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for how some families have had enough of the phones. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The president's words were reckless and his actions were reckless. The president's words that day at the rally endangered me and my family and everyone at the Capitol building. Joining us now is Aaron Zittner, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Hey, good to be with you. Well, everybody's still trying to figure out what happened during the midterms. Obviously, uh, it seems like the House will go Republican. The Democrats retain control of the Senate, although we're still waiting uh, as well for the Georgia Senate runoff race there to see, uh, you know, what else happens. But overall, we're trying to see what happened, why this red wave that was kind of predicted never really happened. And what we're seeing is a lot of independent voters broke for Democrats in these midterms. And uh, we were expecting possible announcements from former President Trump. But it seems like he kind of figured heavily in this. There was a lot of independent voters that weren't really into that whole sect of election fraud, all this other stuff. And they ended up voting for Democrats in a lot of cases. So Aaron, what are we seeing as far as independent voters? Yeah, that was the surprise here. The Republican Party really did accomplish something that it wanted to do, and that is it brought its voters out to the polls in the electorate overall nationally. And in a lot of these states with competitive Senate races, there were a lot more Republican voters than Democratic voters. 
But in the course of bringing out these Republican voters, at least in those competitive Senate states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, in the course of bringing out the Republican core voters, Republicans apparently chased the voters in the political center away from the Republican Party and the independent voters swung Democratic, which is a big surprise because if you had looked at the polling of independent voters, up for grab voters, undecided voters, you would have seen that they were very sour on the economy. They had very little faith in President Biden to fix the situation. In other words, they were answering poll questions like Republicans do. And yet, they voted Democratic, and we have to conclude that they did voted Democratic most in states where abortion and where the 2020 election and the future of democracy were salient issues. In all of the lead up to this, I mean, you expected in the primary for people to be a little more on the fringes, but all leading up into these, the, the final midterm votes, you were seeing, you know, headlines about, you know, hundreds of candidates that are election deniers, things like that. And, and some of this stuff, you know, really started turning people off. And this is a historical anomaly. I think President Biden is the fifth president in a row to come into the White House, come into office with both the House and the Senate of his own party and enjoying one party governing, one party rule in Washington. And then he looks like he's going to be the fifth president in a row to lose that one party rule. So the weight of history is that this election would have swung very heavily against the party that holds the White House, the House and Senate. And when people are unhappy about the economy, you'd think that they would vote against the party in power. 5.5 million people at this point, and these numbers will change, have voted Republican in House races rather than in Democratic in House races. But it somehow hasn't translated to a lot of Republican gains. And again, in the Senate, this was Senator Pat Toomey, a Republican senator who's retiring, said, the more MAGA you were, The more pro-Trump you were, the more you underperformed with independent voters. The midterm voter pool had about 30 percent of independent voters. So that's a a lot of people. And, you know, the question for a lot of Republicans is obviously that Monday morning quarterbacking, right? Looking back on it is how much time did you spend trying to turn out the base versus how much time did you spend on what these independent voters are doing? And, you know, in this current state of polarization that we see all the time, you kind of know the tribes stick to each other already. So you really need to make those wins in the middle. You really do. And the door was open because of the economy and low approval rating for Donald Trump. The door was open for Republicans to have a conversation with independent voters. But if you walked through the door as a Republican candidate to shake the hand of an independent voter, and the first thing you were going to talk about was the 2020 election, you weren't going to get a handshake back. Now, the other thing to keep in mind is in some states, Republican candidates chased away Republican voters. According to the exit polls that we use in Arizona, 14 percent of people who said they were Republicans voted against Blake Masters, the Republican candidate for Senate, and voted for Mark Kelly, the Democratic incumbent. So there are places, I think Pennsylvania was the same, where more people crossed party lines to vote against the Republican Senate candidate than the other way around, the Democrats losing their voters to the Republican candidate. In Arizona, as you mentioned earlier, abortion seemed to play a big part of that, you know, where some of the Republican candidates were a very hard line on abortion, maybe didn't support it, even in the case of rape or incest. And, and you know, that just wasn't where voters wanted to be, at least the, the voters in the middle, right, is what we're talking about. So abortion played a huge thing for the Democrats. 
I think so. And look at a state like Michigan, which is a presidential swing state. It's a state that went for Donald Trump in 2016 and then swung back to Biden in 2020, you know, kind of narrow, very close elections. Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic uh, and governor there, won by about 10 percentage points. Her opponent, uh, Tudor Dixon, had a very hard line on abortion and uh, opposed abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. In Pennsylvania, another swing state, that was another state that voted for Donald Trump and very narrowly by less than one percentage point and then swung to Biden. He won the state by 1.2 percentage points. Again, a very narrow, closely divided state in presidential elections. The gubernatorial candidate there, Doug Mastriano, opposed abortion rights in all cases and had no exceptions for a rape, incest, or the life of the mother for abortion. And he lost by a landslide margin as well. So where Republicans took these hard lines, they turned very close states into not such close elections. Aaron Zittner, politics reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, glad to be with you. And then recently they've moved to this public comment period where they were trying to get sort of a wide swath of opinions on whether they should issue any kind of minimum seat dimension requirement. Joining us now is James Baikalis, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, James. Thanks for having me. Well, the FAA just recently had an, uh, an open comment period on the seats on planes. <laughs> um, they're looking into uh, evaluating seat size for passenger safety during emergency evacuations, but they got like 26,000 comments, most of which people were just railing against the size of seats, saying they're cramped, they're unsafe, it's torture to sit in them. I have to agree, sometimes it can be pretty crappy on some of these airline seats. You know, and for airlines, their incentive is to make seats smaller so they can cram more people in there. But you wrote an article talking about everybody hates these small seats. Will they get bigger? It's an interesting look at it. The overall answer seems like probably not. But let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what the FAA did and, and some of these comments that came through. This is an issue, obviously, as you mentioned, that affects you know, millions of people every year who are flying, uh, flying in the U.S. And so it's an issue of that people feel really strongly about. And the FAA launched this review, this recent review of airline seats a few years ago in response to uh, congressional legislation that, you know, sort of ordered them to look at whether they should issue any kind of minimum seat requirements for uh, passenger safety. And so they initially did that by conducting some studies about how quickly passengers can evacuate from an aircraft in an emergency. And then recently they've moved to this public comment period where they were trying to get sort of a wide swath of opinions on whether they should issue any kind of minimum seat dimension requirement. Yeah, and it's it's pretty interesting because the FAA did do simulated emergency evacuations to test all this stuff out, but there was a lot of criticism leveled at it. They said that they didn't use people under the age of 60. You know, they didn't simulate real world conditions of, you know, somebody that might have kids or, you know, problems getting out, you know, know, people trying to get stuff from the overhead compartments. They didn't really take those steps. So there was a lot of criticisms in the simulations that the FAA did do. Yeah, that's correct. Even the 
Transportation Department's Inspector General has faulted the FAA for failing to account for some of these real-world factors in, in their simulations. People are potentially, you know, there might be people with disabilities or there might be people who don't speak English and might not understand how to evacuate. So there's been a lot of criticism leveled at the FAA for these simulations. The problem is the agency says they can only conduct these simulations in line with sort of regulatory and ethical standards because it's testing with with humans. So I think the situation that we're in is, um, you know, the experts sort of said to me that they believe the FAA probably won't issue any kind of changes to the seat requirements unless their safety studies show that this affects evacuations. And so far, with those studies being somewhat limited, they haven't shown that there's a need to increase the seat size. What could possibly trigger some airlines to do uh, to make bigger seats? I mean, it really have to be something from the FAA, uh, a decision from them, or you know, it, there's very few ways really for airlines to increase their the the size of their seats. They say better technology, right? And you made an, uh, mm-hmm. a mention about the air about Airbus, who recently did a design change to one of their aircraft reducing the thickness of their interior walls. So they allowed each seat to be 0.7 inches wider in a typical, you know, nine seat configuration. That's not that much. You know, the airline seats and uh, airline cabins are really designed. It's really a game of inches. Airlines try to maximize every little speck of space inside the plane. And so with this Airbus design change, airlines essentially have two options for their A350 aircraft, which is a long haul, a long haul wide body aircraft. They can either, you know, make each seat, as you said, 0.7 inches wider, which most seats are somewhere around 18 inches. So 18 inches wide. So that is somewhat of a change, but some airlines are probably going to instead choose to use that extra space to add a tenth seat going across, which means that all 10 seats are going to be one inch narrower, which is pretty significant. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be tough already. And, you know, we hear stories about larger passengers. They say sometimes you have to buy two seats just to fill. There was some story mm-hmm. that just went viral uh, very recently where the lady was caught between two larger passengers and she was so uncomfortable and, uh, you know, made a big deal of it uh, as well. So, you know, we know Americans tend to be larger sometimes. Yeah, it's just an interesting look at this where, you know, the public comments going through everybody just railing against these seat sizes, but doesn't seem like there's much change coming on the horizon. Right. The experts that I spoke to, you know, said that they're not that optimistic that much change is going to come out of this. As we were talking about before, the FAA is really focused primarily on safety and airlines. Other than that, the government doesn't take a lot of regulatory action focused on airlines other than safety. So, It seems like the question is going to be, is the FAA going to determine that the size of the seats right now are too small to or the legroom is too small to allow for a safe evacuation? And the experts are saying that probably unless the FAA changes their standards for testing, they're not going to find much effect of the small seat sizes. James Baikalis, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a good evening. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. They haven't grown up with technology as much and they don't have some of the etiquette. So they're doing it in the middle of the dinner table during conversations and especially at times when they should be paying attention to grandchildren or other family members. Joining us now is Heather Kelly, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Of course, anytime. Well, I love the article you wrote up. You know, when we're usually talking about screen time and too much screen time, we're thinking about very young kids. We're thinking about teenagers who are just constantly buried in their phones and their devices. But your uh, write-up was about the flip. We're looking at baby boomers who can't stop staring at their phones and acting very much uh, like those teens that are just obsessed with their screens. Um, you spoke to a number of people saying their parents are just constantly on the phone. They're not paying attention to their grandkids. And uh, it's becoming a little bit of a problem there. So Heather, tell us a little bit more about it. So first of all, this apparently quite triggered some, some boomers. This is not <laughs> all baby boomers. I talked to probably a little over 100 people, maybe 120 millennials and Gen Xers who have boomer age parents, and I asked them about their phone usage, and about half said they were great. And then the other half said, yeah, you know, the boomer kind of grandparent world, they have a problem looking at their phones. They're looking at Facebook. They're playing Candy Crush. And what's different about the way that we're seeing older people use phones is they haven't grown up with technology as much, and they don't have some of the etiquette. So they're doing it in the middle of the dinner table during conversations, and especially at times when they should be paying attention to grandchildren or other family members. Yeah, it's like these, uh, at least maybe the people that you spoke to that are in this boat are having to parent their parents over this whole issue and kind of, you know, maybe uh, model some good behavior about it. But you know, you, you kind of were talking about a, a number of reasons why this might be so. You know, one of the main reasons might be, as you mentioned, it is still a newer technology to them. And part of the time looking at that screen is really figuring out what's going on, uh, how to, you know, make sure that text message looks good or how to even search parts of the web that, you know, part of it might not be that they're just completely consumed with it. It just takes them a little bit longer. 
Exactly. And parents, I'm a parent, I think we're a little more tech savvy and we're looking at our phones maybe just as much, but we're doing it quickly. We're doing these tasks. We're firing off text messages with one hand under the table while talking to a child. We're multitasking like crazy. And they are not as familiar with this technology. They're taking a long time to type out, honestly, lovely text messages. They're also a little more thoughtful (laughs) about the messages they send. They're not using abbreviations and emojis as much. And if they are using emojis, they're using a lot of them. So it is just a different way that they're approaching it to accomplish a lot of the same tasks. Tell me a little bit about the grandchild factor, because in a lot of the people you spoke to, that was, I don't know if it was the number one thing, but it was one of the main things they kept referencing. Like they're not paying attention to the grandkids when they're over or, you know, some in some cases they were uh, actually bonding with their grandkids over the screens because they can look at common things like on YouTube or whatever. But the grandkids seem to figure very highly in this. So a lot of the parents I talk to, they acknowledge that these are grown-ups. They can do what they want with their own time. And so the only time it's really noticeable or becomes a problem for them is when it's around children. And I, I think everybody kind of thought when they got older that the grandparents would help with childcare and pitch in. And they're finding that a lot of times they're looking at their phones instead. They're not as physically active. And in some cases, the phones can be a way for those two generations to connect. Uh, One person I spoke to said her son was really into jet planes. And so he and grandpa would sit and look at videos of planes on YouTube for hours at a time. And sometimes this does make parents a little anxious, especially ones with more strict screen time limits for their own children, because the grandparents, like all things, they throw those rules out the window. (laughs) But in the end, it's a way for them to spend time together. It's funny that the article strikes me only because I've seen this with family and family, friends, and all that. And I've seen that intergenerational bonding happen. I've seen other parts of it where, yeah, they're just kind of consumed with, you know, whatever latest story they're reading, and they can't get enough of whatever's going on. So I've seen all of this. And it's just kind of funny to me that it's playing out in a lot more places than just that. And uh, you also uh, mentioned in the article too, right? They probably learned some of these behaviors from their own children. Uh, It might have started as first like, hey, I'm complaining, they're complaining about it. But now that they're kind of getting into it, you know, it's the flip side of it. I mean, we bought them these devices. A lot of times we taught them how to use it. it it's on us. A couple tips just on, you know, maybe if you want to wean them off of it, maybe uh, you, you mentioned uh, maybe buy them a smartwatch if you can. That way they can kind of get some of those alerts quickly without having to get into the phone. And then obviously setting up that do not disturb it could be an important one, too. Definitely. And also maybe just talking to them. They, they might not know the rules. They don't know the etiquette about when is a good or bad time to look at your phone. You can teach your own children who are very adorable to have those conversations, but then they could also turn that back on you and say, mom, dad, get off your phone. So be careful with that one. (laughs) Heather Kelly, tech reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.